Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Coming up this week, we'll have an update from Dr. Rue from Geisinger. We're also going to hear about what are the plans for Knobles. Dr. David Palmiter will be joining us. He's going to tell us about some other tips in order to continue getting through the pandemic situation. This week on Special Edition, we're going to start by introducing you to Diane Baldy. She is the president and CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Heart. They have been one of the organizations that has been keeping in touch with their patients through home methods such as teleconferencing throughout the pandemic. She's going to tell us the history of hospice and, after her interview, coming up on Friday, June 5th, NEPA Gives is holding a one-day online giving extravaganza. They are going to be one of the organizations taking part, and we'll have the details for you. How did Diane get started in hospice care? Well, I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since 1983, and I've been doing hospice work since 1987 as a uh, registered nurse case manager, director of nurses, director of an inpatient unit. And 17 years ago this year... um, CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Hearts. So it's been hospice for me for almost all my career. Hospice has changed a lot, the outlook of hospice. Mm -hmm. What would you say if someone said to you, Diane, what is hospice? What does it mean? Well, that's a good question. I think um, what I do know is that hospice is a level of care, a certain part of the Medicare, uh, the Medicare benefit for for one, but mostly at the healthcare system. It's for those patients who have, by their physician, been deemed to have a prognosis of six months or less. So it's a specialized care for those patients and their families. I never say patients without families because many of us know that when somebody in your home is sick, the whole family is sick. So families are dealing with this illness as well. So hospice is a specialized branch of medicine that deals with those patients uh, with a limited prognosis and gives them the best aspect of pain and symptom management, certainly the whole component of social work and spiritual counseling and volunteers that are available, as well as the medical management and the clinical management of the disease. Now, you said six months think it necessarily you can't put a time frame you can't and that's a very good point um what our physicians certainly our medical director as well as the patient's attending physician what they declare is that the patient to the best of their knowledge can say that this prognosis may be limited to six months or less based on very clear guidelines through medicare and medical assistance as well as the private insurers so they would look at a disease as alzheimer's for example and say does this patient meet these criteria 
And they'd say, to the best of my ability and best of my knowledge, yes, they do. You mentioned families. Since so many things have changed, that in itself has changed. That's been a big change, especially over the course of my career in hospice. When I started in the late 80s, a lot of patients, families were still home. Women weren't in the workforce as much or, or vice versa. And so you see then they had the uprise of inpatient units, you know, for maybe um, certainly it becomes short-term management, but it's as a place. And you see that a lot of caregivers aren't available. So that was really the big switch in hospice over the past 33 years that I can tell you that a lot of caregivers are just not available. People have to work, you know, and so that's why that's been a huge change. Like a respite care, Mm -hmm. but not for the patient. No, it's, um, there's a level of care in, under the hospice benefit through Medicare and also medical assistance that allows respite because if you are a caregiver, if you're, caregiver, if you're a full-time caregiver, even a part-time, it's exhausting work, not only mentally, physically, but emotionally exhausting. So there's a, up to five days on a level of care that's known as a respite that a patient would be transferred to an inpatient facility or someplace that the hospice has a contract with and therefore it's a rest for the patient's caregivers or their family or friends. Mm-mm. It doesn't mean that things are ending. It doesn't, it's Not just something, all. and if you haven't experienced it, then you yeah. probably can't appreciate it. Truly, and it's and then patient is in great hands, as well as the caregivers kind of getting that revival that they need. Where did Hospice of the Sacred Heart come from? Well, it's it's a, kind of a little bit of a long story, so if you bear with me, um, it'll be 17 years ago this year. I had been working at another hospice in the area for a very long time, and I got a phone call one evening from uh, a physician. I didn't know. My kids are still home. You know, they were doing their homework at the table. I was getting dinner ready, and they said, Mom, there's a Dr. Bucci on the phone. And I live in Scranton, so I didn't know who he was. And I thought, oh, gosh, was there something I forgot to do at the inpatient unit? Was, was he angry? Is he upset? So I called him. He says, you don't know who I am. He said, I'm Dr. Bucci, an ophthalmologist in Wilkes-Barre. And your name was given to me by someone who thinks that you might be able to start a hospice for me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, doctor, <laughs> I thank you, but I'm not sure who gave you this call. And I'm really very happy where I am right now. He said, please just do me the justice. If you hear my story and change your mind, then we'll, that'll be okay. I said, well, okay, I'll be happy to. He said, when? He said, tonight. He said, I'll come to Scranton. I'll meet with you. So cut to the chase a little bit. Um, so what had happened six months before me meeting Dr. Bucci, his wife of 22 years had died suddenly. Mm. And he and his wife every January went to Hawaii for two weeks. One week was for his um, conference for ophthalmology, and the second week was their family vacation. So he was only going to go that six months later after she had died, uh, his wife Angie. He was going to go just to the conference and not to Hawaii because he just couldn't be there without her. He was truly and still remains quite devastated by her loss. And so he said to his staff, give me, you know, I'd like to go to a retreat. His son lived in California. I'll stop and see John, and then we'll, uh, I'll go on that retreat. So he said to his staff, but I really would like to start a hospice in Angie's honor. So while I'm gone, see if you can find someone who might be interested in starting it for wow. me. So he does the Hawaii conference, and he goes to California, and he's telling me this. Now, Paul, I've never met the man before, and he said that when I was on my retreat, I was walking. He said, and all of a sudden, I had this incredible feeling as I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy, 
that they would have found someone who's going to start the hospice for me. Oh, wait a minute now. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so it gets better. So he said, I came back, and I came back to my office in Wilkes-Barre, and one of the nurses came running up to me, and she said, Doctor, I think I might know the name of somebody who could start the hospice for you. He said, wait till I tell you. I knew it was going to happen. I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy. With that, her, she goes white and pulls my name out of a piece of paper. Um, it was a nurse who I had worked with many years ago at Mercy Hospital in Scranton, knew I was doing hospice work, and just thought it was worth a shot. So six weeks maybe in, in agonizing um, and seeing you know, all those different decisions, um, I decided to take the leap. How um, could you not? Well, I know. You, you don't test fate, right, Paul? <laughs> really? Absolutely. And a good friend of mine had said to me, um, you know, if you... In 10 years from now, would you regret not making the decision? And, and so it's that's. Been how many? 17. <laughs> 17. So you haven't and and where did Sacred Heart come in? Uh, Dr. Bucci um, has a great devotion to the Sacred Heart, as did his wife. So that's where the name came from. And it's. Uh, it's worked for us for very well, and it, most of us all do. That is one incredible story, and it started 17 years ago. 17 years ago, I had a little office. I was there for about six to eight months by myself, just doing the policies, procedures, all those necessary legal things to start a program. And then um, the interest, well, there's so many interesting parts of it, but then groups of us came together. Then there was five of us, and we were able to do all the documentation required, and then we had um, we were certified um, by Medicare, and then for the first year our census was like one, maybe three, <gasps> maybe two. So later on that August, after we received certification, Dr. Bucci calls me again, and on a Sunday, and he said, "How about you come down and meet me for lunch?" <laughs> and I said to my husband, "He's going to close. I understand because at that same time, Dr. Bucci was paying all our salaries." Um, out of the goodness of his heart, and he said, I'm never going to close. He said, I know that's why you think I called you down here, but I want you to believe is that someday we are going to do very well, but you have to never, ever forget what it was like to have a census of two. Things came together. The stars aligned. And where are you today? Our, well, we have three locations. Our main office is in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, we have a Center for Education on Montage Mountain Road. We have about five people who were office there. And then we have our inpatient unit in Dunmore, um, which is a 10-bed inpatient unit. If it was anything else but hospice, it wouldn't have the same kind of feeling. It's true. And it is because of the level of how we reach people, um, both patients and their families, um, and then how a, a team can come together. And hospice is really meant to be team. And so it all comes together. And what a great privilege it has been for all these years. Why do you suppose that people don't investigate hospice? And I'm going to throw out the term palliative care. Mm -hmm. Because that's something that now seems to be one of the new buzzwords. It has, you're, you're right, it has been. I think even, you know, all these years later, 33 years later, patients and their families are terrified of the word hospice. We call it the H word because they think it's, it's a bad word because they believe that it's, you know, patients are going to die right away within three days and that's it. It truly is not meant to be because six months is a very long time. And in those six months, um, if the patient continues to decline or still show symptoms, they can be recertified again. So six months, you know, it's a very clear process of how that happens if patients can stay on. So I think patients and families and sometimes the medical community don't have a true understanding. So ex ex investigation is a good word to use. 
palliative care, and this is just my own opinion, I, I strongly believe palliative care and hospice care have the same components. Um, certainly that team approach, those cores, team, you know, the nurse, the physician, the social worker, the counselor, the pastoral care is a huge part of it. But um, palliative care and hospice probably end um, when the six months comes. So the truth be told, when a patient is diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, palliative care should start that day and then work in tandem with hospice care. Um, I think palliative care may be an easier term to use with patients and families who are terrified of the hospice or are terrified of a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where they, you know, they run up to an end and then it becomes all, it should become all hospice at that point. The other question a lot of people ask is, let's say you have an incident at home and an ambulance takes you to the hospital. How does the hospital work with hospice? Well, hospice works that if we receive a referral from a physician, and we whether the patient is at home or in a long-term care facility, um, our admissions team goes out, does the evaluation. They ask the questions. They already have um, the physician's order. So they kind of do the, the background check to see if this patient, when they report back to the medical director, is acceptable and um, able to be on hospice care. So then it is assigned to a case manager, registered nurse, who then goes out and she determines or he determines what services the family and the patient requires, how many visits, whether they be for personal care, for skilled visits, if the volunteer is um, would be helpful, then they determine that with the team. Every one of our patients in any hospice is reviewed every 15 days with all those four core fields, um, core positions um, present. Another myth I think about hospice that you have to have a do not resuscitate. That is not true for, I can speak for hospice of the Sacred Heart, because that's a big decision. Mm -hmm. The only place for us, it's true, is for an inpatient unit, because we don't have a crash cart. So we would say, you know, there's two hospitals in that area. If you choose that, then you would have to go be discharged from here. So the patient, that's up to the patient and the family. That's completely up to the patient and family, So just because you say hospice doesn't mean... Right. Okay. Correct. And that's a decision, again, speaking for hospice of the Sacred Heart, that you would make. That's why a social worker comes in and a counselor comes in and sits down with a patient and family, and they're able to discuss these um, decisions, these big decisions. So in terms of an ambulance, we certainly talk to our families, and so we have that, that difficult conversation you know, about the resuscitation, um, the five wishes. Um, and yeah, we have to talk about We're going to talk about five yeah. wishes, which is a great topic. And when the family and the patient have decided this is what we're going to do, we can tell them that we're 24 hours, seven day a week service. If there's a problem and you think it's something we can handle, call us. We'll get somebody out there as quickly as possible to probably avert a hospitalization. Sometimes you cannot. So the hospitals work. We let the hospitals know that this is a hospice patient. Our staff follow up in the hospital and certainly help with the discharge planning either back to home or back to a facility. Hospice, you have to meet a certain criteria. Right. And if you, as you said, the DNR order, the do not resuscitate, what happens then if a family decides, if the patient decides that maybe I want to do that, then what happens to their relationship with hospice? Because you're kind of going above and beyond what, as you said, you don't have a crash cart. Right. Talk about the inpatient unit. If anybody, and when that's something that's known to everybody through documentation, whether this patient chooses resuscitation or chooses not to be resuscitated. So we have that uh, discussion up front, clearly discussed as well as documented about the ambulance. If a patient does decide to 
forego the DNR, can they get back into hospice? Oh, of course, yes, you can get back in, certainly with a physician's order and the consultation with, uh, strongly encourage the attending physician, who most likely has known that patient for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We will certainly want to keep them involved as well. And the patient remains in charge where the patient and family should remain in charge of their care. Patients change their mind all the time, you know, and certainly with hopefully investigation or discussion with family members. And that's our what's one of our roles there is to help foster that communication and make it clearer and so everybody's on the same page in terms of the patient and family's care. There are things that are life sustaining Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned in the very beginning hospice is to control, to help ease, to help facilitate. If you are on medications Mm -hmm. and different things that might be life sustaining, how does that all work into it? Well, maybe I guess the best example may be um, a peg tube or a tube feeding. That might be a great example. If the patient has one, certainly that discussion, you know, takes place. Is this something you would like to continue? You know, do a benefits and burdens type conversation about that. Certainly when in conjunction with the attending or the family physician as well as the medical director. And then this is what the patient has wanted. The patient and family are in the driver's seat, you know, and they're the core. Actually, they're at the head of the table um, at an interdisciplinary meeting. So the patient and family would understand that, that this being discussed, and we accept that. Let's talk a little bit about the five wishes. Now, first of all, explain to us what that would be in the term of medical the Five Wishes is a terrific document. Um, we started using it at Hospice of the Sacred Heart in, in terms of all our patients, all our new patients. But it's not just for you. No, no, no. It is not just for us. It's for anybody. Um, and it's uh, it's a wonderful document that um, actually, uh, I believe he was a social worker who worked in a hospice, decided that he was having deeper conversations with patients and their families regarding their last wishes. Um, we know it commonly as... Um, what our rights are in terms of what our resuscitation rights are, what we want, what we don't want. Our advanced directives directives is basically what it is, and which is something you can run offline, and it's a pretty cold, stark document. And the five wishes makes it more um, personal, and I think that's the best way I can describe it. They ask the patient in conjunction with the family. It kind of starts that conversation that we all shy away from because it's a very difficult conversation. So what we do, what the five wishes does is say, this is who I want from my physician. This is who I want with me. This is what I want if I should become incapacitated. I can't make it my own decisions. For example, I want music playing. I want my family here. I was amazed at that. I don't want a hospital bed. Yeah. This is what I'd like in my funeral. I mean, so it is makes it easier. We've had since uh, very many instances where the patient family say, you do this part and I'll do this part and we'll come together and have that conversation. So it's, it's very clear. It is a legal document. Um, and we strongly suggest if anybody's using them to certainly have a copy, let your physicians know, uh, be aware of it. And we want, we're there to honor it. We're there to protect it for you and to help you live by it. So it's back to the conversation that you know, we just passed the holidays, and we strongly have always encouraged families to, this is a good time. Family isn't from out of town. This is a great time to at least, if you haven't done it, to sit down as a group and do it, and then also um, to do it privately and then share that information. And you said it is a legal it document. It is a legal document. it doesn't have to be notarized It does not have to be notarized, not in Pennsylvania. And actually, um, if you're... 
and I know you're familiar with it, Paula, there's a little card that mm-hmm. says I have, you know, five wishes. And it is, it's, it's a terrific document that is so personalized. It's not that cold document. I do not want resuscitation. I don't want tube feedings, you know. No gray oh, areas. No gray areas, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it makes it easier for families. There's nothing worse, I believe, than in the hospital and you're having those you know, those hallway conversations, you know, and all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And you, you, the person, um, your family member who is the patient and can't, um, speak for themselves. I don't know what they want because we never talked about it. So this strongly encourages it. And the other thing when it comes to that, uh, as we said, it's not just for the hospice of the sacred heart. You can get these, you can get it online? We can get it online, and I think it's a dollar for a copy or something like that. But if you certainly look at it, and it kind of gives, it definitely gives you the idea of what questions to ask and how to make that clear, especially if you're the patient, for your family and loved ones. Mm-hmm. Because again, like an advanced directive, it only comes into play if you're unable to make decisions for yourself, if you're incapacitated. And you can also give other things. There are, there's space where you can go in and you can say, Unless this or because right. of that. Or... I want this. All, everything is covered. Yeah. Um, and all possible scenarios down to your obituary and, you know, um, people you want um, near you and by you and how you want the room set up or not. And it's it just has such a great sense of peace, I think, for families and patients. And I think a lot of times, too, people don't think about those things. It's unpleasant, I think, sure. or it's hurtful to think about it. And again especially during the holidays or certainly anniversaries. Like I said, you don't want that hallway conversation in a hospital or a doctor's office because you're just not prepared. So Mm -hmm. I think um, the one true thing is that we all know it's going to be our time soon. So um, we try to do it once a year, even for our staff, just to, because we were doing it all the time for patients and families, make sure you have your own. Oh, but that's very true mm-hmm. as well, because again, mm-hmm. it starts, It the right. biggest thing it does is it starts a discussion, mm-hmm. and sometimes, now that would be something that I also ask about hospice today, as opposed to hospice mm-hmm. then. Um, even 17 years doesn't seem like a long no. time, but a lot of things have changed, right. and as someone who is involved in hospice and has been involved in this, what would you suggest or how would you suggest someone who maybe is hearing this for the first time and saying, you know, maybe we should do, how do you broach something like that? Well, we we do get those questions a lot because families and patients are very concerned, whether it's been for a very um, life-limiting illness or diagnosis has just come. And I'll use the example Alzheimer's and because I think the other myth to dispel is that the public, I think, for the most part, even after all these years that hospice has been around since the early 80s, um, believe that it's all patients have to have cancer, and that is not the truth. Um, cardiac disease, certainly, um, end-stage neurological diseases, Parkinson's, um, but Alzheimer's is kind of easy to say because the cancer is a little bit more easy to prognosticate. Not always, but for the most part it is. These other diagnoses are not. So... My my best suggestion to everybody, you said the word, investigate. Do your homework. Um, so, for example, if you have a patient or somebody that you love who may be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, some of the criteria for that to make them eligible now for hospice care would be that the patient has lost the ability to smile. 
the patient may be incontinent of a bowel and bladder, the patient, uh, their vocabulary is limited to six words or less. They are bedbound. They require full assistance with all their activities of daily living, you know, cooking, bathing, washing. So those patients do meet the criteria for hospice care. If that belongs, those criteria belong to somebody that you know, certainly call your physician then have them reach out because, again, which is a wonderful thing now, patients are in the driver's seat. We get to make those decisions for ourselves. And I think that's probably the best way I approach it. I actually always have the criteria with me for all the other diagnoses to say, before I go and talk to somebody, yes, they they do qualify or they don't qualify, but here are some other options of care. Now, before we let you go today, what are some of the other myths that maybe you have come across that you'd like to be able to say, oh, and by the way. Right. I I think it's probably not only is it, you know, um, how hospice responds and how hospice only comes, you know, three days before a patient is going to die. That's not always the truth. And I think we're not emergency medicine. So I think we do our best work when we're involved earlier uh, that hospice is truly about pain and symptom management. One of the myths is that we give morphine to everybody. <laughs> that is not the case. Um, we do not do that. And that um, our patient, our staff are so clinically sound and compassionate in every single way and dedicated certainly to the mission of hospice as well as to the place where they work. So I think the best advice to dispel those myths is to do your research, to do your homework and find out exactly what hospice is. Call. I'd be more than happy to help at any given time. Um, as well as our admissions team or anybody in the office would be happy to help. Talk, reach out to somebody you know who's using hospice care. See what their experience has been. Again, it's for the whole, uh, the whole patient and family unit. Um, and we do personal care. We do um, vital signs. We do blood work. We do IVs. We do all those things. But our biggest um, efforts are always to provide comfort, care, hope, and choice to patients while getting them and their families through the end-of-life journey. So that uh, the myths still remain, but I'm still here all these years later to dispel them. How can people get in touch with you if they would like to start investigating? Oh, certainly. And I can certainly give you the correct websites and, and resources to look for. Um, my email address is dbaldi. Um, B-A-L-D-I at hospicesacredheart.org and certainly you can call the office they have a great way of tracking me down at 570-706-2400 Once again, NEPA gives a one-day online giving extravaganza that's all about giving back to the community will take place beginning this Friday For 24 hours, donors may make donations to their favorite local nonprofit organizations through the NEPA Gives online platform. You can find NEPA Gives on Facebook and nepagives.org. Don't go away, more special edition to come. Welcome back to Special Edition. Now it's time to get the latest update from Dr. J. Wan Rue from Geisinger. Intercom's Rocky and Lissa have the questions, especially about outdoor activities. Are you at Geisinger anticipating any uh, spike in the positive cases this week following the, the big weekend? Yeah, so uh, typically what we see is if there's a spike, it, there's a lag to it. So in the week or two following 
things where activities where the virus could spread or maybe there's a higher likelihood of spreading, uh, that's when you would expect to see first a spike in the people who test positive, and then maybe a week or so after that, you might see a spike in the number of people hospitalized with the virus. So we're going to be watching that pretty closely. This is what we've been saying, you know, as you reopen, and I do think there's a safe and responsible way that we can reopen functions of society, but the distancing is going to continue to be important to emphasize, even more important now than ever, to make sure that people aren't gathering in in large congregated kind of settings and that they're maintaining, you know, masking if they're out and about where they are coming into closer contact with folks. I think getting out into the outdoors is wonderful, but doing so in places where you're not likely to be in big crowds, I think that's absolutely critical right now. And then, of course, in indoor environments, for sure, masking, even outdoor, if you're going to be coming into proximity with other people, definitely masking. And then the hand hygiene and all the other things that we've been emphasizing. What would you tell extended families who are divided on their stances for masking and distancing? Yeah, I think I'm noticing and hearing the same. And I think whether it's family or not, unless you've been doing the shelter in place and staying at home with them, if it's extended family from elsewhere, other cities, or even around the same neighborhoods, I think we're still exercising any kind of precaution or emphasizing precaution and anything that would involve a gathering in a group setting. And so I've seen some people get creative around making sure that they're still spaced six to ten feet apart, pulling up lawn chairs, you know, getting together in the outdoors. I think that kind of stuff feels a lot better than, you know, getting together for a big family gathering of 20 all in one place or in one house or in one backyard, nobody's masked. I think those are in everybody's hugging and I don't think we're there yet where we can get back to those kinds of activities. I think the group setting is still where we have to exercise a lot of caution. The other thing about masking, I mean, the mask, I get it. It's not as comfortable, obviously, than not having a mask. But the mask that I wear protects you, and the mask that you wear protects me. It's also why just in the last week or so, we've sent out over 16,000 masks to our employees so that they could use them at home and out and about in the communities. Of course, when they come here on our campuses, they're issued different kinds of masks, but that's how much we are convinced that masking is is a key piece of how we're going to do better as a community. That's so kind of you guys to do that. Well, I mean, one, it's something that we feel obligated to do and we're happy to do. We know it's going to reduce the risk of spread among the community and within our employees. You know, if there's one theme throughout this whole thing, we've been pretty laser focused on how do we make sure that our employees and our patients are safe. And hopefully that makes it easier for them to go ahead and mask as they encounter functions of society coming back online in a phased way. Good deal. Now, Dr. Rue, as things heat up and uh, and folks are opening up their backyard swimming pools, what is your uh, take or what have you learned about the virus in pools? You know, it's tough to say. I think in a pool, the evidence, the jury's probably still out. I don't think there's any evidence that suggests that COVID can spread in whether it's a hot tub or swimming pool. We do get asked this question. But what we would worry about a lot more is that these activities sometimes can be associated with large gatherings of people. And so I don't know that getting in the pool itself is any danger, but if you're there 
in a big pool party of 15, 20 people where you're going to be in close proximity with people, I think that's the same risk that we were talking about earlier, and that is concerning because that is shown. There is evidence to suggest that that does increase the risk of spread, especially if they're not masked. So I think it's not so much the pool in and of itself or the water in and of itself. It's the fact that if they're associated with large gatherings, that's what's more concerning. Gotcha. What should employees know about fellow coworkers who have come back to work after having COVID? So we, at least this is how we do it, we have them all cleared through our employee health based on timing of symptoms, timing of testing, and so forth. If you're awaiting test results or if you've tested positive, you have to isolate in a separate area of the house, ideally a separate bathroom, and limiting contact with everybody while you might be exposed. I think that's another key feature. But basically, the typical amount of days, it's about 14 days that we require that someone quarantine if they've been, if they trigger some of those things, if they tested positive, as an example, in your example. And so during that time, I think it's important that they don't go back to work. If they've tested positive, they would be recovered, and then there's this period of time before they can you know, meaningfully interact with other folks. And this is straight out of the CDC list. I think there's, you know, a lot of good information out there. It's on our website as well. Uh, We put together a toolkit for local employers that contains some of this information, sort of the general screening, testing, masking, flow, staggering, limiting number of people, all of those frequently asked questions around how do I reopen my business you know, if I'm a small business owner or something like that, or even a larger business owner, we put together that toolkit and, and made that available with the expertise of our employee health department. Well, thank you for being our human toolkit. You're amazing. No, thank you. It's always good chatting with you all. And now that more counties are moving into the yellow phase, that means other activities are starting to reopen. Intercom's Doc and Jesse caught up with Stacy. She is public relations at Knoebels Amusement Park, and she gives them the details on what is going to be happening there. So, yeah, like I said, Knoebels normally would be packed on a weekend like this. So much fun, so many great memories for families over the years, but, you know, with everything going on with coronavirus right now, they are not open. Stacy, who I would say, by the way, Stacy Osaski, who is, uh, I guess, in charge of fun and games there at Knoebels, is on with us, and uh, some new exciting things coming, but uh, give us an update first on what's going on. The start of our park season is on hold. We're continuing to follow federal and state guidance to slow the spread of COVID-19. We are scheduled to open April 25th, but we know that the state has indicated that we can reopen once we are in the green phase of reopening. It's difficult to say exactly when that opening will be, but we're still committed to opening as soon as safely possible. So you guys are under yellow now is where you would be? Yes, correct. We've actually had several parts of Knoebels that have either remained open or will be opening very soon. Knoebel Lumber and our Nickel Plate Bar and Grill have been providing essential services throughout the entire pandemic. Our golf course reopened May 1st and our park campground will be open June 11th. That's really exciting news. Are you completely booked up? Not quite. We are still taking some new reservations. We know that people are really just looking to get out of the house and have a good time with family. How will things like rides change? For example, on a roller coaster, will you be next to someone or will there have to be like distancing on that too? 
It's really tough to say exactly what will be required from parks once we do open, but we will certainly be prepared to follow any guidelines that are best for our team and for our guests. Some of the things that we know for sure that we're going to see, we have over 150 hand sanitizing stations that will be placed throughout the park. Our team will be trained to how to protect themselves and how to protect our guests. But, you know, it's really tough to say at this point what a timeline will be and what exactly will be required when we reach that time frame. It's going to be exciting, though, when it happens because everybody loves Knobles. They'd be looking forward to it. Oh, most definitely. We have a lot of exciting things that we're still planning. We have a new ride coming called Tornado. It's a 32-passenger ride that you sit four people in each of the cars facing inward, and the ride itself will spin, and once it reaches speed, it tilts 20 degrees and lifts people about 15 feet from ground level, but the coolest part about it is that people will be able to pick their thrill level. Oh, that's neat. Yes, you will also be able to spin the cars that you're sitting in by turning a disc in the center of the ride. Doc, I don't think that's your ride. I was going to say, how would I do on a ride like that if one of the kids said, hey, I want to up it. (laughs) Don't you touch anything. (laughs) So it's definitely going to be thrilling, and as you may know, we consistently win the award for the number one amusement park food in the world, so we always have to keep stepping up our amusement park food game here and we have a lot of new exciting on the menu like we do every single year some of my favorites that i'm really excited about is dole whip have you ever had dole whip Mm, yes yummy yeah so we have a pineapple dole whip here and we usually rotate two other flavors it's a dairy free soft serve and we actually are going to have five flavors rotating of the dole whip now and something that we've been uh really experimenting with are gourmet grilled cheese one of them being loaded baked potato jalapeno crunch with jalapenos and Doritos in it. Yum. And uh, the barbecue chicken one, I think, is going to be my new favorite for this year. I didn't even realize until last year when my daughter said it. And she's like, we got to get the pizza. And I'm like, what's pizza like in an amusement park? And she goes, no, wait did you <laughs> taste delicious. this. And your, your pizza is as good, if not better, than most places. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, we have so many unique food stands. There's something for everyone. Well, we are definitely looking forward to the opening and hopefully it's happening soon here, Stacey. Well, we certainly hope so. And, you know, we'll be prepared to open as soon as safely possible. We still think that there are definitely memories to be made this summer, and we're convinced that we can make that happen safely for our guests and for our team, so we're really looking forward to welcoming everyone back. All right, we'll see you guys soon. All right, thank you so much. More special edition on the way. ways to go for everything to get back to what many are calling a new normal. What about the children? We now welcome Intercom's Webster and Nancy. They chat with Dr. David Palmiter about children and COVID-19. So with us, we have uh, psychologist Dr. David Palmiter, also a professor at Marywood University. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Dr. Palmiter. Thanks, guys. Good morning. All right, so, uh, okay, so but- here we are. You know, this uh, this is information that the Census Bureau has gleaned now from replies uh, that they have, uh, along with the census information, they've thrown in three or four questions that I guess you would find on your typical uh, mental health screening uh, about uh, depression and anxiety, and they're showing what they're calling are uh, at least uh, interesting, if not alarming, numbers here. It uh, doubled the experiences of depressed mood from a similar survey done in 2014. You know, 50% of people are now reporting, and the surveys was just over the course of one week in May, are reporting experiencing some kind of depressed mood. Whereas in the last time a survey like this was done in 2014, it was 25%. 
so it's a big jump. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is uh, that maybe, I guess, what some of us might have thought would be the case, you know, certain areas that are hit harder during the pandemic or certain demographics, like older people, since they are hit harder. But actually, we're finding that younger people, this is affecting even more. Yes, and it's it's a really alarming trend because the rates of suicide have grown in younger groups too over recent years so that suicide is now the second leading cause of death among people aged uh, 15 to 24. It used to be third so it's it's an alarming trend that younger people seem to be reporting more symptoms than older people are. Well I mean and it's all you know presumably this is uh, triggered in large part uh, um, due to the pandemic and uh, the, the, the what's interesting is the younger people generally speaking are not really susceptible to uh, severe uh, conditions that uh, older people might experience if they contract the virus so where's it coming from well I, I think the thing about this pandemic that kicks everybody's teeth in is, is there's three elements you know it's we, we don't know the end so that that unknownness of that and young people are, are deeply affected by that uh, I mean I've got a senior just graduated college I see that up close and personal uh, the second thing is the sense of control you know we don't really have control over this thing uh, and I personally think that I, I haven't seen any research on this but I personally think that's why we see all this reckless behavior because people are trying to capture a sense of control even though it might not be uh, true and then um, you know, knowing when the end is, we, we just, it affects every area of our life also. So those kinds of, those three things, lack of control, affecting so many areas of our life, and we, we don't know when it's going to end, synergize and affect just about everybody, you know, one way or another. So when you, uh, my, my when we hear about what the government is trying to do to help us you know they give you money for people who uh, are out of work uh, and obviously poorer people they say also have a higher depression and higher anxiety obviously because of you know yes. uh, the fact that uh, money is involved but we, we really haven't talked about how to help people uh, dealing with these uh, other uh, things that are being impacted the mental health of people we have not seen anything about how to help them Right. I mean, all suffering are like dragons guarding treasure, and and I number among those that hope that one of the treasures that will emerge in America 2.0 will be a greater awareness of this huge problem that most people who need, who could benefit from mental health care do not get it. And that when people do get care, often it's it's pedestrian or it's not science-based. You know, for instance, you know, if you come in with, let's say you have a disorder like generalized anxiety disorder, uh, where you're worrying excessively about a bunch of things. Well, first of all, most people with that don't get any help. And then sometimes when they go in, the first thing is just a medication. When cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, a talking intervention can be so much more helpful and not require any kind of alteration in brain chemistry. Um, so th th I hope that forcing us to deal with our, our mental health as a collective will focus us on the need for uh, people to have easier access and, and to not have a stigma attached to getting that access to effective mental health care. 
Oh. Well, you know, the, the thing is, uh, you, you know, and I, if I say media, I don't just mean news media, but I think the, the media in general is really playing a major role here in terms of depressing people, you know, and I don't, again, not necessarily even news media, although certainly they are, but just turn on the TV at night and watch when the commercials come on and they're everyone identical. It's somber, minor key, piano, tinkling music, and then an announcer who's giving you this hushed, you know, no monster under the bed tone of voice about these are uncertain times and we should be blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a constant, steady barrage of that thing has got to have an effect. Yeah, it, it does, absolutely. And I think that everybody needs a, a, a coping plan, you know, for this time. And one of the low pieces of low-hanging fruit is to limit the amount of exposure to that kind of media. It's sometimes hard, you know. I find it hard sometimes myself to stick to my own rules about that. Um, but that would be something to do to, to avoid access to that. And, and I occasionally do a Google search for good news, COVID-19, because sometimes the, um, the good news that's out there about Science, science teams working on this and that solution doesn't crack the headlines of, mm -hmm. of some of the major outlets. Yeah. As we look forward, uh, and you know, governments are, are, this is so new, the whole coronavirus and trying to figure out, you know, how to keep people safe, but also not, you know, keep them locked up. As we look towards the fall and schools, um, do you feel, looking at a lot of this information, that it is uh, incredibly important we do everything we can to get kids back into schools, even if they have to make some changes. Uh, what, what's your professional opinion on that? Well, I, it's hard as a psychologist. I want the, the aspect of this I want attended to is, is screenings for mental health. You know, that, to make screenings for mental health available to all students and then have a plan for gaining access. Well, even if it's simple like uh, support groups done through Zoom, if, if only that you know, to have some sort of plan for those that flag on the screening tools. In terms of when people should be back in person or not, I, I'm just another lay, lay person listening to the experts debate that. I'm, I'm not really sure where I, where I stand on that. Mm -hmm. I know uh, you have a website, helpingfamilies.com, and your blog, hecticparents.com, and I think that dovetails nicely with this. We have in our show prep uh, pile today, the University of Houston uh, have, has done some research, and uh, their study finds that multitasking can make stress and anxiety worse, they say, which is obviously bad news for parents who are working from home during the pandemic. Oh, it's so, such a burden. I mean, one of the things I say to people I'm working with is the importance of grief and self-compassion. You know, there's, sometimes there's all this effort, let's do this, do that, do this, do that, to feel better. And if we're not grieving and, and, and embraced in self-compassion, it's like picking over rust. You know, you, you, it, it, it just doesn't have, it just doesn't take, and people are, live in certain degrees of denial. I think to let ourselves experience the true loss, the true stress, and then to talk to ourselves in ways that are self-compassionate and manifest loving kindness is a starting point for any coping plan. And parents, oh my God, parents who are working at home are, are just through the roof with stress. Well, the multitasking yeah. being pulled in six different directions at one time, I mean, obviously that has to have an effect. And it's unremitting, you know, when you have little kids, because, you you know, those of us, I mean, my youngest kid's 19, so I'm, I'm not in this category. And I can I can choose to isolate myself and meditate and do self-care. You know, when you've got a young kid in your house, um, it's hard to, to create those islands of, of healing because the kids' needs are so unremitting. 
What What's some of the advice that you would give uh, to uh, parents out there? You know, dealing with this situation, I, I, and I'm sure that you know we may not all be depressed or have, but but I think most people, it's normal to have anxiety during a time like this. I think for, for, from the angle of like how to help their kids, you mean, or more self care. Well, I would say how also to deal with the children, because obviously it looks like they they seem, at least according to these uh, numbers, to be having the hardest time uh, dealing with this. So you were just talking about the self-care and the grieving, but what would you uh, suggest uh, for them taking care of their kids and how and their needs, the kids needs to give the kids to to communicate on some sort of regular basis, um, ask the kid, how are you feeling? And see, we parents, we're, we're crazy people. We love our kids so much. We're, we're lunatics. So, you know, as a parent lunatic, I know that if I ask my kid, how are you feeling? And they say they're sad or they're worried. I want to jump right in with reassurance. And that is something to avoid. I want to give my kid empathy until they're done expressing themselves. <clears throat> Let them know I think it makes sense for them to be feeling those things and to offer a compassionate response. Only then offering a reassurance uh, that I believe if, if I have a truthful one to offer, to offer the reassurance then and develop a coping plan there's all kinds of resources out there. I have, I've created a YouTube channel with a bunch of uh, coping strategies for, for COVID-19 quarantining. Uh, Kidsandcouples.com, there's a bunch of them there. And so one focuses exclusively on parent strategies. Great. So uh, folks can check that out again, kidsandcouples.com. Dr. David Palmiter, psychologist, Marywood professor, thanks for being with us and helping us uh, get a little more information on this. Yes, and thanks for the work you guys are doing. It's so important. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.